Hello and welcome to another episode of Hearing in Colour with Matt Simon. This podcast explores the connection between creativity, synesthesia and spirituality. Synesthesia is a condition where it's a cross-rung of the senses, so when I listen to music, I see colours. Alright, so welcome back. We've got the mighty Steve Ling returning. Um, Steve has had quite a saga recording one of his albums, and we're going to talk about that today. And I'm going to play devil's advocate. I'm going to interrupt occasionally and ask questions if something seems a bit unlikely or trying to guess what listeners might be thinking if there's anything that needs to be clarified. And um, Steve, you requested that I didn't listen to the album before we did this because I haven't heard it. Is that right? Yeah. um, Yes. So just if I thought it might be interesting, the type of questions that someone asks um, before they know what any of the songs are, um, as opposed to once you've heard them once or twice maybe and actually then you've got more different questions to ask so i thought that might be an interesting listen back we'll do before and afterwards okay cool so this album is so it's been completed now but has it not been released uh well yes um i can show you an actual copy of it (laughs) through the camera um so yeah i have the cds now um and it is officially completed but now i'm in between the processes of completing the work and getting the work out there. And so this album was quite expensive, maybe not in terms of like Rihanna albums expensive, but on a local level you spent like a fair amount on this. Um, you have to go into the exact figures if you want to or not. It took quite a long time. Um, so that's what's quite interesting for this because the creative process varies for everyone. I've had uh, releases that have taken different amounts of time, but this has been quite uh, an epic for you. So yeah, where do you want to yeah. start? I mean, well... I, I always kind of thought about it having watched so many episodes of Grand Designs, you know, building the houses and stuff, and so many clients start off with a, an idea of how much money they want to spend and how long it's going to take. And that's where that kind of comparison just snowballed for me. And that's like why I think the album that I've made has got so many parallels with like making and building a house um, in that way that if the most simple one at least being that I overshot my budget and I overshot my time allowance as well quite considerably so I I have no problem sharing the sort of exact figures sort of thing is that I back in wow 2013 2014 I had set aside two thousand pounds that was my budget I don't really know what I was expecting for two thousand pounds but you got to put some flag in the sand yeah, and for anyone listening, like you, uh, for a home recording budget, you could potentially do that yourself because if you're recording on a computer yourself, you can maybe produce it yourself and um, other things like artwork and you can do things. Um, for, that does sound maybe a lot for some people, but for an album that is quite cheap and achievable. So it's that's... extremely cheap, but from someone, I suppose, not used to working with those professional mix engineers or mastering engineers at this point then you don't know how much anything costs all you know is how much like a wedding guy gets paid on saturday night to play guitar you know so it seemed like all right i can i guess my original idea was i could pay uh the drummer a few hundred pounds to help to if i worked with him uh, to help set up the studio and understand the whole process so i was helping him so it wasn't really that like he charged me as such, but I gave him like a sort of thank you token gift present of like a proper nice Dyson fan for his um, 
studio, <laughs> you know, like about 300 quid, something like that. And I spent a week with him setting up the mics, putting them down, you know, like one half term, just so I was giving my time to help him learn how to mic drums up in the return for him recording the drums for me. And was that at your place or his place? That was at his studio. I was quite fortunate that he owned a a sort of teaching space where he got two drum kits set up and was quite easy enough to be able to put the mics up and put it into his laptop. And but like as you know, and I'm sure most people will know, recording drums is a is just a a very tricky art. It's lots Um, of instruments at once, isn't it? Yeah, and you need to know a little bit about what you're doing and. So for instance, like one of the days that I was there, we we tried a whole load of different mics to see if there's any differences. Like one of the stories that was quite memorable for me was about the Tom mics. He bought some, what do you call them? MD421s, I think they call them. I don't know what the brand is. I'm not really up on the mics and that. But um, they were supposed to be really good vintage Tom mics, three of them. And we t- tried the Tom on its own against like a different mic. And we're listening back to the recordings going, they both sound exactly the same. Why is this supposed to be the better mic than the others? And then you put all of the mics up and you hear the tom in isolation. And all of a sudden this mic has like a really small catchment area. And that's why it's good for tom mics or whatever. You're like, ah, now I see it. So we were learning a lot on the go, which means that it wasn't like the drums weren't done in like sort of four days where the, the kit was yeah. mic'd one day and then it stayed mic'd for all the days. We just had to do like as much as we could in three hours, break it all down, come back three weeks later, set it all up again, do as much as we could, break it all down and then keep going for weeks and weeks and weeks until we'd covered everything essentially. Ah, because normally um, what you do, because yeah, because you're paying someone else for the time and like you're often like doing it on mates rates. So to sort of like get the most value both sides uh yet normally you'd maybe set aside a couple of days um someone to have a setup and then you do a bit of prep beforehand and then run through some takes and then take the files uh, so that's what i've done with uh martin griffith has done a lot of my indigo stuff um so set aside that couple of days and then or one um comment what song it was or a couple like um someone had a studio so we like i paid him for that time paid martin for the time he was there and the mics were done so it's you try and get it all done in a space of a few days normally. Yeah, and I think I, I saw a problem with that because, well, you, you know get a me consistent sound as well because even if you have the same mics in the same room and same equipment, if you set them up the next day, it might sound a bit different. It, well, it, we, it did. It sounded completely different. And we did slightly different mic setups for different tracks. Like some of the tracks had two snare top mics and one snare bottom. Some of them were set up a lot better than others. So when it got to mixing it, we found out that there was so much hi-hat spill in the snare mic that essentially we didn't use the the hi-hat mic. We just used the snare mic and that was enough for the the hi-hats as well because it was recorded so badly, you know. Um, And um, if you have the same recording sound on each track, um, if you're using like a metal album, for example, where the drums actually sound quite consistent, you can have the same processing on each of the audio files for each different uh, song you're doing. So that saves more time as well. Because yes, you can that is... EQ it all, get that sounding good, and then kind of copy and paste those settings into the next project. So again, that will save time. Yeah, the only problem with, again with that would be that a lot of the tracks on my album are just layered so differently. It's not like maybe like a, a rock band or a heavier band, like I don't know, Deftones or Korn or something where you've always got 
the same lineup and they're kind of playing through the same sort of sounds like yeah. heavy distorted all the time or what have you but i've got i've got tracks that there's one track that is um acoustic guitar electric guitars plural bass drums lead vocals and backing vocals and in the vocal channels there are well the logic came up to tell me there are you've used all the available tracks there are there are only 293 tracks you can record on <laughs> i think my record is about 80 <laughs> yeah well but this is where i had to learn how to kind of batch record and start doing takes so that i had one track to represent each individual different part if it's like there's a four-part harmony the top part the bottom yeah. part or whatever um and then there might be like so many takes within that so actually the the amount that i recorded was insane compared to how many I actually used but but that's one of the tracks it's got like i don't know nearly 300 lines of backing vocals in it but one of the tracks on it has literally just got one acoustic guitar and one vocal a bit like more than words that was kind right. of the modeling of one of the tracks so it, it yeah it kind of goes from a full band right the way down to one guy and one voice sort of thing oh yeah and this is the thing with uh, digital recording is that you can have lots of different takes and lots of different tracks and then be switching between them and like not make a decision so it's kind of double-edged sword because you've got all those options but at some point you need to just like cut them down and say right we're going to use that part that part and then um just work more practically but it's yeah with digital recording it's never ever finished is it like you can always do more or oh, I'll keep that one because I might use it for later but you might not well I think yeah there's an interesting point to be made that I'll keep that one because I might need it for later it's a tricky one like if it's not right when it goes in there's a lot of time I found that it's like a lot of the time it didn't come back that I used it later with comping drums I think that's something completely different but with vocals and guitar I guess with that being like mine and yours, like main instruments as well, I'd yeah. probably be a bit more picky with that and want to make sure you've played it all in in one take perfectly as much as possible, I would have thought. You've also harmonised those, like you don't generally harmonise bass and things as well, so you might automatically yeah, have true. more guitar parts anyway. And then I generally myself do maybe like three bass takes and then comp together bits of those, but I wouldn't normally have any more than three bass on a Well, track. interesting story surrounding the bass lines. Um, most of the bass lines were, were the first take that I picked up the bass, plugged it in, and sound checked the level, and it's like, right, hit the record, go. Wow, all right, that was a good take. Cool, we'll do that. It's like, for some reason, I've found that the more takes you do, especially on an instrument, the worse you get. Like, I mean, yeah. in terms of... Can happen, yeah. In terms of like the way it sounds listening back to it, it might be a bit rough around the edges and a bit like ooh, just about in time on the first take. But usually there's so much more expression and twiddly bits and little bits that you're trying that maybe you wouldn't do if you were, you know, recording on someone else's CD or something. But when you're doing your own thing, yeah. it's like, oh, I'll just put this little bit in because it might be funny. So I had the, the track one. Um, on the album, pretty sweet. I had to re-record the bass line because there was some, I don't know, some problem with the sound. It was like a technical problem, not really like a performance problem as such um, that wouldn't go away in mixing. So I had to re-record the bass. Problem was that bass line was exactly that situation where I just picked it up, played it along, bosh, done. There were two or three mistakes in there, rhythmically and uh, melodically as well. Which I was surprised that the 
those got past the producer's ears that they weren't mistakes to him. They were just notes. Whereas I heard them as errors, if you know what I mean. Is that something you could have uh, tweaked on the computer, like with auto-tune or something? Well, but this was the point, is that I I had to relearn the take as it was, as I performed it. So I transcribed ah, right. it. And I had to transcribe the errors. And I had to forcefully remember to play the errors. And the first time I played it in, when I originally wrote the bass or played in the bass line, you know, it took me one take. It took me four minutes, maybe. But I did 65 takes to get that bass line. <laughs> I've only ever done that much for guitar solos, yeah. It's funny because, like, yet again, like, um, something to do with the bass as well. Like, the producer, Bill, um, while we were mixing it, he's just like, I really like the bass player in this band. I want to be the bass player in this band. And I agreed with him. I said, I think the bass lines are, most of the bass lines for me make the album. They make the song. They make, there's so much more interest in the bass line than there is in a lot of what the guitars are doing. Which is a weird thing to say, because you know, lead guitar is like my main instrument, but I find there's a lot more interest in the drums and the bass for me. The bass is a rhythm instrument, or the bass guitar is, and um, you know it has so much impact into the the groove and the momentum of the piece more so than the, the guitars do. So it's it's really a, a structural point, and um, it can drastically change the the feel and the sound of the song. So there is yeah, and I it's really underrated. I, a nerdy little thing that I like about bass is, um, especially growing up as someone who was very into heavy music and down tuning and five string and tuning down to E flat or D, low B flat, low A, all that sort of stuff. As I've kind of got older, I really like to hear bass played in its high range, like really high up the neck. Um, I've noticed it in pop music as a trend, more so when I was playing with a... I, I wrote songs with a female singer on acoustic guitar, like folky pop songs and stuff. I, that's when I first kind of encountered it, was that girls tend to use higher bass notes than boys or men and women shall we say um, oh really yeah so like i'd noticed that in pop music it, it might be let's say you're playing you're on a four string bass you're playing e on the a string at the seventh fret and you want to go to a now most men would go down to the fifth fret of the e string and play the low a but when i played the high a she seemed to like that better you know, or you know, there's the higher bass note going up to the 12th fret on the A string rather than that low thing. It's I don't know whether that's a mirror of like women having a higher voice range than a men. Did spring um, to mind, yeah. It's it's a tenuous link. It's, I don't. I'm not suggesting that that's 100% of the time how it is, but I've noticed that that sometimes female pop songs tend to uh tend to to high, highlight and to prefer i suppose the higher bass notes than the chunky low bass notes so i thought that then in a way translates to me that if i want to create more of a feminine mood i play higher if you want to create more of a masculine mood i play lower i don't know why i just that's really interesting i mean for me because um yeah guitar is my first instrument but i'm just playing more and more bass and i play it a lot in gigs as well and it's I'm just getting better and more comfortable with it and more um, proficient as playing as a bass player, you know. And um, so for me, yeah, the, the high notes don't appeal on as much on a bass because I do a lot of that on guitar as well, especially like screaming guitar solos. So for me, when I'm playing bass, I really like the lower end of it. And um, 
just functioning in that warmer area. Like I prefer like a warmer bass sounds and um, playing with the fingers and just really resonating in that frequency and putting that part of the structure into the song and playing that role, you know. Um, because I guess because I've done a lot of the higher things, I love playing chunky rhythm stuff on guitar, but I got quite a big spectrum of sound on that. So, yeah, for me um, personally, I wouldn't seek to go much higher on the, the bass because it's I really do that elsewhere. But that's well, I think one of the things I wrote um, I wrote into these songs. Hopefully, I kind of put it into the fabric of the the, the actual music. Is that these songs should be playable? Like I told my producer this fact, like um, when we first started working together, and he thought that was just a really nice sentiment, because for me, the the ultimate like guitar learning song uh, is Back in Black. You know, just I think every guitar teacher has mentioned it at least once. You know, not so much <laughs> for sure, yeah. Not so much Smoke on the Water. We talk about Smoke on the Water a lot because of you know the significance, but. But actually to play, Back in Black tends to be more the one that kids want to play. And I think there's a reason behind it, because they, the, the song features open chords, E, D and A, and a twiddly, twiddly, twiddly bit that's really hard. Exactly. It's got that little spice on it. It's got it? that little bit that makes it nearly impossible as a beginner. Yeah. And so I feel that there's something in that, in the, if you if, if the songs are playable, in a way from start to finish that m means that they're interesting that they go places it's not like i mean could you imagine getting your acoustic guitar out to i don't know a track like uh story by justin bieber you know where you're like okay i've got the three chords cool yeah a flat c c minor b flat yeah, yeah a flat b flat c minor blah, 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 blah. well that's just three chords over and over and over and over and over and over and over to the point where if the section never changes, it's not very much fun to play along to. Now, I'm guessing at this. I'm assuming that people don't play along to pop songs like that. Not just specifically that song, but the modern pop stuff that doesn't really change from the verse to the chorus. It's just one loop. When I was teaching uh, guitar, um, so yeah, so I'd start with songs that maybe had like four chords in it. Um, and then it could be like G, D, E minor, C. And so it's very accessible to get into that, but then also like, okay, right, in the verse you want to do less, here's some rhythms you can use for the chorus and to kind of fill it out a bit more. So you're giving them the tools to make it better and do more with it. So yeah, they're not going to get bored because yeah, if you can just plonk through this and it works, but yeah, to make it more enjoyable, here's how to then enjoy it more without making it more difficult. You can make it as difficult as you want and or as least boring as you want. All right, so after the bass, what came next? So the, most of the, in fact, all, all of the songs uh, were recorded or written, shall we say, written before recorded in their entirety, in their entirety uh, in the living room. Um, and I mention that because I think it's quite common these days to get the computer out, whether it's GarageBand, Logic, um, Cubase, and kind of start the process in front of the screen. Um, I, I don't know whether I'd class it as fortunate, but I was quite fortunate to grow up recording into a Tascam Portero 7 um, tape cassette four track recording unit, um, which meant that when, when I was recording, I would record a drum track into the tape 
and then I'd have to play along to the drum track with the guitars and various layers and you get used to the fact that you had to get it right in one go the whole song you couldn't just record the verse and stop yeah. and then see how that sounds and that you had to have the whole song imagined in your head before you even went to record it so I thought there was something in that that I wanted most of the writing to be in my head rather than effects and sound effects and processing, if you know what I mean. So all of the songs were written on acoustic guitar and they're all playable on acoustic guitar just as one instrument. But then it was the case of once the song was completed as a solo acoustic singer-songwriter song, then we take it into the bedroom, then we record that bit maybe layer up a, a sort of demo drum beat and a, like a sectional drum beats that maybe this change, but there's no fills. There's no, it's just, you know, how it is. Yeah. Just, um, get the rough beat down and then maybe track the acoustic guitar in properly with a drum beat behind it. Um, and then start adding the electric guitars and bass until you've got to a point where you have a version of the song that is lead vocal, acoustic guitar, whatever electric guitars there are, bass and drums. And that's it. You've got a working version of the song. And usually that happened starting at about one o'clock in the afternoon. By about eight o'clock at night, I've got my working demo. And that includes writing the lyrics, writing the chords. That's um, very fast. Well, yeah. and But this is why I would say that these are the songs that made it on the album. So there's 14 songs on the album. But I wrote 25. So what I noticed was that some of the ones that, um, that didn't make it were the ones that I got the verse down and I got into the bridge and then I was like, the, the chorus doesn't work or, or I've got a good chorus and I can't find a good verse or it just somehow got stuck somewhere along the, yeah. the journey. And I just thought that is the sign that is if, if the, I've got ones that finish themselves, you know, like Paul McCartney said, or like the greatest songs, they write themselves. And I agree, they do. Um, as long as the idea is strong enough and you know exactly what you want to do, I guess the, the only reason I mentioned one o'clock is because usually you get up in the morning, I guess late muse morning in those years, and then you slumber over to the shower. And once you're in the shower, bam, that's where the idea comes. You can't record the idea in the shower, so you have to sing it to yourself like, I remember having two ideas consecutively for one song. One was a chorus idea and one was a verse idea. And I spent 10 minutes in the shower, A, being a vocal melody in my head, singing it out loud while I'm washing my hair or whatever. Um, so that when I got out of the shower, I could record it into the phone and remember exactly what those two lines were. And then once you've got it on your voice memo, bam, you, you don't have to, you can remember, you can stop thinking about it. <laughs> so... Yeah, it was quite quite intense days, and the, it was generally the ones where the ideas were so strong in the shower. I was like, I can't risk forgetting this. And then you take it in the living room, and then it's like, right, cool, that's a whole song done. Yeah, it's interesting because some people will spend a lot of time writing. Um, yeah, like you said, some songs write themselves. Um, I think it's Bumblefoot saying like sometimes he just gets music and he's like, it's like downloading it. You know, it's like almost it's kind of comes through complete, but then you need to have the faculties to be able to process that and get it out. Um, whereas yeah. other things, it feels like you're sort of like chipping away at marble, like the statue eventually reveals itself, but there's a lot of work. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's, there's 
there's mileage in discussing the opposite way of composing. Like, I mean, uh, this is a pop rock album that I produced, um, but I also love heavy metal and have a side project that is a heavy metal project, which I wrote all the songs in the opposite way, which is where the guitar parts and the backing tracks get done first. And then you try and slot words over the top. Um, I find that so much more difficult to do. The, the words are more difficult to write when the song is already done. Um, for me, at least when, when you're putting the chords to the words, you can do so much more um, because you might just have the, the idea uh, in your head of the chorus line or something. It's like, well, does that want the root with it? Is that the third or the fifth? Or am I going to, I can change that and put that scale with it. Or there's so much I think you can do with a melody. Whereas if you're trying to fit a melody to an already existing chord progression, I don't know. It feels like the result, I've never had a good result, like um, writing the chords first and putting pop words to it. It seems like the story is the most important for me. Yeah, I mean, the feeling, it's, um, I read something with Sting, he says, like, sometimes he'd have, just, like, write music and then write lyrics other times and sometimes pair them up, and, like, I've done that as well. Um, yeah, I will never sort of fit, try and cram a melody line over chords, because if I'm working on a melody line, it's got to fit with the chords, because that gives all the notes context. But, um, yeah, sometimes if you have the music first and, you know, you've got the feeling there, so you've got to fit things on top that fit with that vibe so but um also for me sometimes when you're writing you'll be like putting the music together and that's the kind of vibe and sometimes it seems similar to other songs that other people have written so you're like if i tuned into that same kind of vibe you know similar kind of arrangement or well this is it this is where i wonder whether the, you're right with that in a sense that if you write a chord progression your brain just scrambles for all the things songs that you know that sound like it and then try and play you a song in your head that you recognize and therefore you think that melody and you play along to it. You go, oh, I've got this really cool idea. And then later on, you realize you're just singing someone else's melody. It's, I don't know whether there is something like that, but I do believe that every song that has been written sounds like has come from some other song before. It has to, you know, there's only 12 notes, isn't there? It's, yeah. There's, um, it does seem there's only so much you can do, but then, um, you know, recently there's been quite a few like copyright um, cases. There was, um, was it Dua Lipa, Dua Lipa and, yeah, and Ed Sheeran as well, yeah. But See, then, I... they use such basic building blocks and such. Um... Well, this this is interesting. I'm mean, like, I'm thinking about putting a section like this, uh, to a, a descriptive section on the website like this when I eventually get round to that. Um, talking about um, maybe just one of the songs. Uh, and showing how how I used ideas from other songs intentionally. Right. Yeah, that'd be really but, interesting. But to to show the difference as to how you can be inspired by an idea versus rip it off verbatim. Like, yeah. and I think it's quite simple. Is that if you if you put to use the same musical device. Like, for instance, like we would have remembered from college, you know, My Funny Valentine or something with the, um, what was it, C minor, C minor major seven, C minor seven, C minor six, that descending yeah. semitone. That is a musical device, which if you put that descending semitone on a minor chord in another song, it will link you back to that My Funny Valentine feeling. But you can't really say that just using the chords is ripping off the song. If you then do a different melody over it or 
or even you might use it as a a counterpoint line in the backing guitar part yeah. or something you know it's that's one of the ideas um for me i tend to tend to think in chunks um like arrangement chunks so for example like for me it wouldn't be just the chord progression it could be say like a certain drum beat and then the bass could be going da 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 for example and then some guitar parts like some popping lines like just floating over the top and that creates like a whole texture in itself so i'd think that kind of texture is like my kind of like building structure and then i use that kind of feel maybe use it in a different key or slightly different arrangement but i'd use that but the, again this is the point is that you modify it some way you take an idea and you change it that's what you're saying i think um and that's what i believe as well is that you you, you take an idea and you see what they did with it and you do it your own way so like another uh influence of one of the songs uh is funnily enough mr brightside Okay. The now, song the song I play every week. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, the song I play every week as well, which is why it must be a massive influence. But um, it's, it doesn't sound anything like Mr. Brightside. What I did was I used the musical device of the structure of their lyrics. Um, so, Mr. Brightside, verse one, is exactly the same as verse two. And also, the melody line is pretty much the same note consistently through the verse isn't it right so there's a good point is that i nicked the idea of repeating the same verse that is what i nicked from mr brightside verse one and verse two are the same because my choruses i had two different choruses so i thought well if the choruses are different then let's just use the same verse you know um but then change the background vibe behind it so you've got the same words but they're dressed up differently for verse two different modal scene if you know what i mean yeah because it could be argued that it was kind of lazy songwriting because they basically just did the same verse twice and the same chorus well, exactly like, yeah and but, but they but they use the same chorus twice as well so actually there's one verse and one chorus and that's it and a middle eight section that's kind yeah. of the end and that's it really um but yeah so i used that idea from that song but you wouldn't say that this particular song sounds anything like mr brightside yeah right because I've used the idea that they did, not the chord progression or the, the the rhythm of the melody or that pentatonic lick, like you know, do a leaper with um, the chord progression, nicking everything, seem, seemingly verbatim from the previous songs. Yeah, and then they outcast one and some other, but it's such basic building blocks that we could probably find ten other songs that use that. Mm. And this is why I'm not worried about my songs being copyrighted. Like, well, that song I've got about the shaman turning into a werewolf and things is like so progressive and all these different things going on it's like yeah good luck copying that like you might find your riff is a little bit similar here but like with all the changes and all the stuff in there just write better material you know because if you're just like oh, I've got G, D and A oh someone's copied me like no everyone is using that but right like what you've just said write better material yes I agree be better be a, be a better composer a better artist a better musician whatever lyricist just don't just go, oh, they did that, I'll do that as well. Cool. Well, now you're copywriting. <laughs> it's just, and it's, the the level of your material is just boring anyway, you know. <laughs> right, so after the, what was the next part of the album? So was there more recording or? So, yeah, we've written the songs. Um, I guess some of them were were written in, in just like in the living room where you got the laptop out, you got the guitar in your hand and you've got one idea of a line and then you flesh it all out. Others took a bit longer. There's a track that, um, for me, is a bit of a tribute to Stan by Eminem. Um, only in the sense that it's more spoken rather than sung. It's okay. not rapped, but it's more spoken. Um, 
and there are four verses and three identical choruses so it's like a bit like the same song structure as Stan as well um, except it's not three three verses of Stan and one verse of Eminem it's actually just four verses of me getting a bit more annoyed why I'm like like this is like a diary entry sort of thing so right. so essentially then um, um, yeah I kind of wrote the lyrics in uh, in a diary and that's when it started to dawn on me that actually if you're writing down in a diary just your thoughts like you can quite easily shape them manipulate them into lyrics if when you're thinking your thoughts you kind of think in a rhythm it doesn't have to be in a melody but thinking a rhythm as you're writing your thoughts like you know that sort of thing i was listening to someone on the radio and a singer I don't know she's being interviewed and the guy was saying oh I really like your lyrics and she's saying it's very easy for her because she just says exactly what's happening she says there's a song about her ex-boyfriend or something and it was like oh so we turned up at eight and he goes like if you turn up at eight that's the lyric I don't change to seven and then like he was wearing a green sweater because that's what he was wearing <laughs> so for her it's quite a direct easy process to do that well yeah I mean I guess that goes into a different discussion about like what lyrics actually are or what they should be you know like I think I think the best songs are actually true, you know, from true stories. Um, and it's, it's more credible if, if it actually happened and you're just describing what happened. Whereas describing a f- sort of fictitious sort of fantasy scene or something like, you've got to describe a lot re- really well to make that like hit someone in, in the same way as like, I don't know, like a tragedy, like a breakup or, you know, death of a loved one or, you know, whatever your theme is yeah i've heard that uh the, like the more personal you make it the more universal the appeal ironically well because... yeah and in some ways that's why i mean do you remember at all um i think it was something that sean baxter said once i can't remember whether it was in the guitar institute or in the academy um but it was like the songwriting class and about avoiding the topic of love for your lyrics and you know all of this sort of stuff and it was like well yeah, you, if if you don't want to go down the mainstream path, yeah, avoid that sort of thing. But I chose that path. I chose to write a breakup album. And I did that, I think, because it is a universal, uh, universal concept. You know, whoever you are, you've probably been through a breakup of yeah, some description. As long as you give it an interesting twist on it, because if it's just like... Uh, yeah, I'm feeling sad. A lot of people can relate to that, but yeah, well, this is this is the thing. Yeah, I mean, um, you've got a very good question angle there. Like, I mean, how do you deal with it? Do you do you tell the story from the point of view of the uh, of the broken up, the person who was dumped or dumped on, um, or do you tell it from the point of view of the person who kind of did the dumping and got away, got off, got away lightly, you know, or or what perspective is it from? Like, um, there's got to be some tension and some interest, and if it's well, just... yeah, because my album is about um, a Spanish girl. Like, I'm going through um, my song lyrics with my teacher, my Spanish teacher, and kind of making translations of the songs. And so, for for her, she gets to understand what the actual lyrics mean. She knows about four of the songs already, but right. she doesn't. She's never heard them. She's just read the words. They're just poetry at the moment, I guess. Um, and it's interesting hearing the reaction um, 
from just the words because like she did she doesn't give me the impression that my album is about oh this ex-girlfriend oh she was a bitch but oh, it's, it's not about that you know it's at no point am i kind of throwing my toys out the pram going oh well this is crap you know it's like it's telling a story of um pretty much all of the good times that you know people share together and i guess in in one sense i don't think any of the one songs on their own are like they're probably like they're not ever going to be like this. It's not going to be a living on a prayer situation. Yeah. But I think collectively as all 14 of the songs, one after the other, that is like a full like audio book description of my life with songs, you know, from start where it starts really optimistic and hopeful and the music's really lively and positive and gets like the full band Rocky stuff where it's like swagger central out the way at the beginning and then the mood kind of dips and it goes a bit quiet and a bit down. And then kind of the more darker stuff comes in. And it is on a full, like a roller coaster journey in like the way the vibes of each song goes. Um, but yeah, it's, I guess it's quite difficult to try to sum up all in one go like that. <laughs> yes, because um, you've got that narrative going through it. And I think for this kind of thing, if you can put some intimacy in it or some details you know people it draws people in a bit more and it's a slightly like voyeuristic thing on their part like they can understand a bit deeper into it rather than just someone saying oh we broke up like well yeah i mean <clears throat> i think the album i would most liken it to in theme is rumors by fleetwood mac except right, okay <laughs> the difference the difference being that the the other person is not in the band and is not recording <laughs> yeah. like any of the these other songs parts, at the yeah. same time, but the intensity of the emotion for me is is about the same level as Rumours, um, and I think that's another one of the big influences because they are extremely negative, frustrating lyrics dressed up in such pretty chords. You know, the the juxtaposition oh, yeah, of positive with negative. And I think that is something that is really special. Like I thought about it when I was writing, like you've got miserable lyrics with miserable chords. You've got miserable lyrics with positive chords. You've got happy lyrics with miserable chords or happy lyrics with happy chords. And I think only really like one of them seems to work. Cause like, like imagine if you're telling like a really, a really happy song, but you've got all these, dirty dissonant miserable sounding intervals happening and the clash chords going in and the dirge at the box like that's a wrong kind of juxtaposition you know i think if you have like sad lyrics uh with happy melodies it's kind of like it's a bit cheeky you can like slipping it under the radar and you can actually go well actually it's about this whereas well, yeah and i think that is maybe that's there's something in that is that it's confusing as to what it might mean like well the song suggests it's a happy song but read the words and oh my god it's so dark but it gives it extra depth, doesn't it? Like there's different levels on it. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess I don't know whether you remember. Um, was she Swedish or Norwegian? The um, pop artist Lena Marlin. Do you remember that? She had a song called Sitting Down Here. I'm sitting down here before you can see me. That one. Anyway, the whole album, um, Playing My Game, I think it is. Um, she is a master of writing cutting like knife out against the throat like <laughs> lyrics but 
you know, it's just D, A, E minor, G, A, you know, D. It's all, all really simple functional harmony, and the songs sound simple. But God, it's so dark and cutting, some of her words. And I thought, that's another... Well, maybe that is... Yeah, that's another Fleetwood Mac-style example. Dark lyrics, positive sounds, chords. I mean, some of their stuff really was right... Not on the edge, but over the edge. I mean, they write in recording songs like You Make Loving Fun Again. Like... <laughs> While like the X is playing on the record, like what? Well, yeah. like... The documentary was on Sky Arts like a few weeks ago, and I I watched it again, and it's it, Lindsay Buckingham talking about well the order of which people were allowed in the studio because like he wouldn't want Stevie Nicks to go in until like he'd done all of his bits because then like she'd be there and he wouldn't be able to do it or she would be breaking down because she's singing these words about her and. Oh yeah, it just sounds like a nightmare. I'm surprised that album never got finished. You know? There's <laughs> again, a lot of cocaine as well, which like, yeah, probably other things. Yeah, and there seems to be a lot of heavy drugs involved in a lot of great albums, really. But unfortunately, not on this one. <laughs> the the most is is like quite a lot of tea, quite a lot of cannabis, and like quite a lot of bacon. <laughs> <laughs> bacon is like the classic. Yeah. yeah. All right. So after you've um recorded the vocals uh was production something that really dragged out the completion yes. of the album production was the thing um that took the the longest i mean to sum it up really quickly the the songs were written between february 2014 and september 2014 and funnily enough i went to bill in september 2014 uh, and basically showed him the tracks that I'd got MIDI drums, guide vocals, you know, DI'd acoustic guitar, all demoed, ready to sort of do properly at a later date. Uh, and he listened to it and he took some notes and, you know, we had a chat about it and stuff. And, well, yeah, maybe sort of quoted me for the idea of going into a studio with a drummer and a bass player and recording it as a band, as a live take. And I'm like, no, that's not what I want to do at all because that's going to be a cost of hiring the studio, hiring the producer, hiring the drummer and the bass. I ain't got that much money, mate. So and then yeah. learning the songs and yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I had always, always thought of at that point that I was going to record every instrument one bit at a time. I just needed to figure out the best way to do it. And I guess the the reason why I went round to him was because of live drums. I'm going to get live drums on this. I didn't know at that point about Ed and whether that was going to be possible, but then that seemed to work out. So, yeah, from September 2014 onwards to July 2018, I guess that was tracking. Final final bits of drums, well, the drums, the acoustic drums, comping the drums, mixing a backing track to get to a point where you then record the acoustic guitar over it, and then the vocals on top of the last thing to go down with the final vocals. Yeah, so uh, this is quite common with recording albums. You'll put together demos and then sort of a backing track uh, to play along to, and then all the real mu- tracks get then recorded over those, and they re- those first ones get deleted, and then you've got the, the final files, because um, it gives you a framework to play to. I mean, if it was something like um, Miles Davis doing a jazz album like back in the 60s, you know, they all just played the same at the same time in one room, you know, and had that kind of feel. But now with multi-track recording, it's, you generally have a framework that's usually programmed or pre-recorded and then you put everything on top of that. 
Yeah, so that then means that every song is metronomically accurate, you know, in time. You know, it's all to a certain beat per minute because the drums were originally MIDI drums. So they are all at a very specific tempo. Although I wasn't super picky about um, pushing the odd fill or if I landed late on the guitar or something, and like, I don't need to put it bang in time, you know. I left it a bit dirty, a bit rough, you know, in places. Um, to make it feel like it hadn't been tracked to a click, but actually it had. Yeah, it gives it a bit more sort of breath, but then playing everything onto that grid is like an art form in itself. Depending on the style of music, again, like rock and metal, you want that kind of structure and tension, although it's gone too far at the moment where things are just overly quantized and produced. But yeah, yeah and you I... want a bit more, you still want it to sound a bit more loose as well. Like the tight but loose is the kind of saying yeah, com competent but loose yeah i think um you need to sound like you know what you're doing and you're not like just getting away with it but actually yeah it's got to have some human feel to it and like i think the thing that's probably surprising for me is that because i'm primarily a guitar player before that i was primarily a bass player i started on bass but bass and guitar are my two main favorite instruments but when I recorded the parts in, like the electric guitars were essentially DI'd from a, a Vox Valvetronic amps. Um, so it, they were just done and they didn't ever change. So the, the guide guitars were are the final guitars, okay. essentially. Because, well, they were never really guide guitars. They were always just straight away final guitars. Um, but yeah, it was only the vocals and the acoustic guitar that I had to do from guide to final and upgrade them but then again at the time at the beginning in 2014 I wasn't really a lead singer I I didn't have a voice but over that time in the wedding band I was starting to do three-piece frontman sort of jobs occasionally and then by the time I'd done the acoustic guitars I was doing a lot more frontman gigs and then by the time I was recording the vocals that's all I did was three-piece frontman gigs so I was getting my voice hopefully a bit tr more trained up and a bit more, well, less virginal, shall we say. <laughs> yeah, and also like finding where your voice sounds best because um, everyone has their, some people do have like an exceptionally wide range of, you know, colours they can put in their voice, but most people, you know, they sound, they really come into their own in one kind of area. Like for me, it's slightly higher than average i've always had a slightly lighter voice than most people and hit like been a hit slightly higher but my voice is generally a bit thinner but then it kind of cuts through a little bit on that range but when i compare myself to other people i see or singers that they have like a real richness and warmth in my voice that i could never get when i was younger you know so it's just finding what is good for you rather than trying to mold it onto what you think will work well yeah and i think each each different track has a different vocal sound as well. Like there was one track that I had to re-record the vocals with because I, for, I couldn't work it out for so long. It just didn't sound right. You know, when you're listening to it going, but ignoring the mixing, ignoring the production, but just the, the original file that you've got, yeah. like the performance of it, like there's something not quite right with it. And it's like a mid-tempo acoustic kind of country pop song. I'm just like, mm, it just doesn't sound like that. The, the words are all at the right pitch and they're all sung accurately, but I decided that I'd sung them in too hard, too forcefully. Right. So I retracked it in a lot softer voice and all of a sudden it worked. It was like, 
okay, this is a soft song, right, okay. And therefore you have to get used to the different traditions of how to record the voice when you're belting it out and then when you're actually close to whispering. Like I found um, an interesting phenomenon. I don't know whether you've experienced this with recording vocals, but when you're giving it the the Bon Jovi or the power voice or whatever it is, you stood up and, you know, you've got the sort of pose going and it's like, yeah, you belt it out. But actually for the quiet things, I found if I was sat on a chair or a bench, a bit like I am now, I've kind of got my feet up and my kind of arms wrapped around my knees and stuff. Um, I think it kind of like must restrict the, I don't know, the resonance or the something in the way your voice goes in that if you're sat down, it's much easier to record quietly than it is if you stood up yeah the energy of your body and your posture is much more like uh not relaxed it's curtailed um, yeah yeah you're sort of like curled in a bit so you're you're naturally projecting in a different way and less generally whereas yeah i mean i generally like to sing standing up when i'm recording especially like the louder stuff but even the um the quieter things i will just try to stand and imagine just still on a stage before me in that way rather than sitting down but yeah each to their own well that's another interesting uh thing like on a stage yeah well that's that is quite an important phrase because like i was recording the vocals in my bedroom and a lot of the time it was through summer i mean it took what i think eight no 13 months maybe 14 months to do all of the vocals so that's through summer and winter and the worst part was recording through like May and June in the hot summer's days, but wanting the room to be like a stage, which means pitch black with a stage light, you know, blue, green, red, whatever. And I've got like an old stage light that I put on top of my wardrobe and just set it to auto and it'll make me feel like I'm on stage. I've got my in-ears in, Uh, close the curtains, blackout curtains, and it's like, as soon as you finish recording, smack the fan on because it's boiling. <laughs> yeah, and you can't have the window open because there's stuff. Can't have the window outside. open because it's so noisy from outside. And it's just like, yeah, those times when I just thought the sun is out outside and you're choosing to stand in a pitch black room in the middle of the day. <laughs> but, you know, it has to be done. Um, so I guess that was just my situation. And, and but then I guess turning it round to see it as that, well, my vocal booth is my bedroom and think how much it would be to hire a vocal booth, you know, every day for like 14 months, you know. <laughs> Did you notice over those 14 months that your voice changed? Yes. Yeah. Um, it got, it got better and uh, stronger, but then I only really noticed it towards the end when I was going to the wedding gigs and thinking, well, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'm used to singing four hours, like constantly nonstop, because I would I would track the vocals by section, chorus, verse or bridge or what have you, but just put maybe two bars before it, put the cycle bar, just yeah. take one, take two, take three, take 25, take 45, and you just like, just keep going and going and going. So there's no break. Um, so I would record and track for about four hours before I think my voice decided that's about enough. <laughs> so then obviously getting to the wedding gig at the Saturday going, well, I've only got to sing for two hours on Saturday, not four. So when I was recording the vocals, my wedding gigs were so much easier 
Yeah, I mean, when I've done um, like work on cruise ships, sometimes you're singing seven days a week. And then, because before that, we're like, oh, two gigs a week. Oh, it's going to be crazy. I'm singing on Friday and Saturday. And then, <laughs> yeah, I mean, your voice gets wrecked if you're doing that kind of residency thing anyway. But um, yeah, I think the stamina got... built into your voice and your fingers just really, it does sit in there as well. Because, yeah, I mean, I've gone through periods where I'm practicing like eight hours a day. But um, yeah, like performing seven days a week can. It's... Especially with the voice as well. I mean, fingers can ache and skin can come off and all that sort of stuff. But I remember having a chat a couple of years ago with uh, a female singer who I did acoustic duo gigs with. And, you know, she was a singer, vocal teacher, singing in the afternoons, very busy at the weekend, sometimes four gigs a weekend. And it's like, I've got a problem with my voice and the doctors tell me to, you know, stop talking to people because <laughs> you know? yeah. your voice just never gets a rest. You're always talking, you're in the break and you're shouting over the loud music. And so in some ways I thought that like, actually it's, it's nice if you're like in some of your off time, you're just kind of at home by yourself and you're not really using your voice that much. And yeah. Another thing with regularly re performing as a singer is that, um, you're never at your best like you because they're like oh give 100 percent, and like you can't unless you're doing like one gig a week and you have sufficient recovery time because if you go all out you give it 100 percent, then you're going to be wrecked the next day so you'd have yeah I mean, you've I been mean, playing at like 85 90 on a good day you know because you not necessarily like you want to hold back but you have to pace yourself because like, i've got to do this tomorrow and i've got to sound consistent and it's yeah if I you're think then in the studio you can then you know like actually go to 100 percent, but it's you can't often do that live yeah there's something that i noticed with the voice that i believe is true for all instruments voice included and guitar and drums and piano and everything um when you first learn an instrument as a beginner your natural reaction is to bash that drum as hard as possible pluck that string as hard as possible dong 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 and I think it's the same with vocals as well. You shout and you sing at the top of your velocity range. And, and actually you realize that just like with guitar, if you want to play 16th notes, you're not going to play them loud. And if you want to play on the drums, it's like you're not going to be coming back. Like the, your hand's not going to be coming yeah. up that far, you know. Um, and I think it's something that even if you know because we both went to the Guitar Institute, we both went through all these learning disciplines and all that sort of stuff. And even knowing about it still doesn't stop you from having to go through it on a different instrument. Like I, I did vocal gigs where I didn't have a guitar and I burnt my voice out in three songs. I was like, I've got an hour and a half left to do. And it's already gone. <laughs> yeah, if, if you're sick, yeah, and you've got to cover the gig. I've done those as well. You know, it is falsetto, is king, you know. It's... <laughs> But so I think there's something about it that I must have known like right at the beginning that, well, the vocals are going to go down last. So we just have to make sure that in the day job, the wedding gigs are making the voice better in, in a gradual sense so that by the time I'm ready to track the lead vocals, I'll be a better singer. That was part of the plan. Right. And again, if you were a signed artist, um, this would be your entire thing. Whereas. Oh, yeah. Um, if you've got to do day jobs and other things, you've got to yeah fit it around that and keep yourself in as good condition as you well, can. Well, yeah, I think this is another thing that's worth mentioning is that like for any artist to record their own work independently, you have to have it. You'd be doing it in your own spare time. It's a hobby. 
really, isn't it? Like, we're not doing it with any promise of any contractual money at the end yeah. of it. You, you do it as a sort of, well, this is my spare time. And I think most people don't realise that musicians don't generally have enough time to do a hobby project. Like, we have our obligations, our teaching, our wedding gigs, our brown-eyed girl, our wonder wall, our Mr. Brightside, you know. And that, it takes a certain amount of effort to just get through that week, but then to go and be able to have enough days free to be able to spend money on a project rather than make money from a project, I think is yeah, is quite something. And I think that's why, like... Um, to do a project over eight years is like to be able to have that much time to dedicate to it must say something as well. Like I've sacrificed so much to put time into this album. Like um, one of the hardest months was February, 2018 in which of the 28 days I worked 25 days and I got paid for three of them. <laughs> Three gigs in February, so you know, 450 quid, 500 quid, whatever. Yeah. The rent, rent is covered. Um, the other 22 days were tracking recording in my bedroom. Like, just get up, set the mic up, go and have lunch, come back, warm up, bam, four hours of recording, finish at six, seven o'clock, then do the editing, headphones on, edit, 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 bounce it down, go and stand outside, smoke, listen to the mix on your phone tweak, 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 maybe do that, go back into the computer three or four times, then it's 11 o'clock and it's like time to go to bed. Well, it's not time to go to bed, it's time to stop, but... And you keep you going, yeah. You keep going. And it's just, and there were those days where, you know, you're just waking up in a room, working in the room, going to bed in the room. And it, it was a weird time, but I think I must have done it because I knew that it just had to be done. You know, and what else can you do? Yeah, I've done that. Um, when it's my last solo guitar album, I was still living in London, and um, yeah, you're sort of renting like a one-bedroom place, or uh, it was a shared apartment. So like, I just had my room, and like, so it was like the bed, the computer, and the guitars, and um, occasionally, like a couple of people came round, like Kian, like came down to do some bass. Um, I got a cello player locally through Gumtree, um, paid like thirty quid for like an hour's work or something, and. Um, but yeah, other parts were sent um, online, like through Fiverr. I got some brass done and some other bits and bobs. But generally, yeah, on the days you're not working for money, you're just yeah in that room, just doing it on your own, break for you're lunch, slogging it away. Computer, yeah, yeah, it can be a soul destroying process. But I think that when you're in it and you're in the middle of it, you don't think about the kind of um, the tying it up and the dotting of the eyes and the crossing of the t's. You just like is this sounding good? Does this sound how I want it to sound? And I think a lot of people ask, have asked me the question, do you wish you'd have done like just a solo acoustic album? Would have been much quicker. I was like, yeah, certainly would have. <laughs> Probably wouldn't have taken eight years to do that. Maybe the next album will be a solo acoustic album. <laughs> just... But also over eight years, um, there would have been significant life events and you would have hopefully like changed and grown as a person. Well, yeah, well, I mean that because often an album is like a snapshot in time for like a year or whatever. You know, it's, like, it's recorded at that point. <laughs> of course, and for one you, of it's the songs really spanned. Is, it's called "Snapshot of a Musician," um, which is like a, just 
think interesting that you raised that but yeah i was 29 when i started recording this album or writing the album i'm 37 now so it's like <laughs> yeah significant it's a significant portion of any person's life i think the some people would describe it as the prime years maybe it's your mid-20s that your prime years but i think your 30s are also your prime years as well and you know to also to know that like i mean the song that the album is about a girl that i i care a lot for um and it it's quite hard to go through being in relationships when um when the thing that you're working on in your spare time your hobby is a project about that just is to show how much you cared about this other person so obviously like you got to deal with the breakup side of it and the stupid thing was i was only with the girl for three months and like what's so while you're with other relationships then you're still like digging into that wound for well yeah, exactly goals. and this is where i think a lot of the people who knew me and spoke to me at the time um couldn't quite understand what i was doing to myself it's like just put the spade down no don't hit yourself over the head with it what are you, what are you doing you know um so it happened, but then because I was inspired and writing the songs about it, that essentially the, the meaning and the message of the album was to, to ask the girl, why? Why did you do what you did? You know, so it's like the whole focus of these songs is like, you never told me why, so why? This is my point, let me know your point. Um, and so I think it was 2015, about two years after, well, the, the next year, um, about 18 months after she'd gone um, that I was like right, I really need to kind of get this girl out of my head now and I need to go out and dating and stuff so I went speed dating and I met someone um, a girl called Yasmin really great girl um, and we were together a few months and I didn't get any work done while we were dating like nothing on the album happened <laughs> totally, while we yeah, were in get, a relationship. get that point and so that was quite poignant for me because like I'm sure Yasmin would have known at the time as well that like something was off um but I was trying to break out of a place in my head but then once you're in this new relationship then actually you realize oh crap I'm not quite as over this other person as I thought so uh, this can't be good and then that's when I kind of ended the relationship and decided that because if you're going to be with someone, you need to give them like your entire undivided attention, really. And I felt that working on a project about an ex-girlfriend whilst I'm trying to be with the girlfriend is like, I think it was just too much anxiety and stress and stuff in my head. So I chose to sacrifice relationships and remain single until the project was over so I could fully commit to it, say everything I wanted to say and then get it out of my head and draw a line underneath it. Do you feel you've uh, processed that now? Now the album's Well, complete? I mean, lots of people have asked me, you know, are you still into her? And it's like, well, at the end of the day, if you feel that strongly about someone that you get as far as thinking that she is the one, then it's hard to shake that. Um, but obviously real life gets in the way and you know, eight years have passed, you know, anything could happen. You know, she's probably got her own family. Yeah might not even be alive anymore. There's many yeah, possibilities, yeah. you know. Um, but, 
yeah, it was one of those things of I need to get this out of my head. I need to say what I need to say, and um, I'm I'm over it. You know, I chose I chose to think that yes, it would be nice if it all worked out in a fairy tale, you know, Disney sense or whatever you fairy tale movie, but reality is that chances are it won't. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, like then it's just a, hopefully just a very good story and like some nice songs that came out of it. But I really would be interested to know what she thinks. She's the only girl in my life that told me to delete her contact details and never contact her ever again. Um, so that's that really, you know. That would have been my next question. Um, would you like her to hear it or like, well, that, that's kind of the it? point of, of the, the songs is that they actually are directed to her. So like one of the lyrics in the chorus is I'm singing this song to you because I can't get you out of my mind. So the, the lyrical direction is from me to her. So when people are listening to it, I guess they're either going to side with, I guess, the guy if you're the guy and maybe side with the girl if you're the girl or whatever. Um, and imagine those words being sung to you or something, but yeah, it's, I guess it, it should, it'll probably go down like you're a fly on a wall of this weird situation. It's like, well, how's this going to turn out? You know, it's, I don't, there's, you know, there's the occasional sample of her voice, like from a birthday party that I had and it was recorded. So the audio is there. And, um, oh, so she's on the album. <laughs> technically. She is on the album. Yeah. Um, which is it all kind of is evidence of itself. Like when one of the tracks is like, I saw you laughing and smiling with me, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, you hear her laugh. You've heard it. No, it's true. <laughs> I guess it's maybe in a reference to, was it like Maroon 5? Was that Songs About Jane? It was like a breakup album thing as oh, well. Yeah. It's more of a, I think that was one where it was like definitely about one girl because it's Songs About Jane. It's definitely right. about Jane. Yeah, that makes know? sense. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I guess then there is also the, I've got to consider the angle that, you know, maybe some girls don't want songs written about them, but us guys, we just do it anyway, don't we? <laughs> I, say, I mean, it's un, I mean, unlikely we'll get a song written about us, you know, because he writes Yes, about unless it's people. where sort of this dude's a, an idiot or whatever it is, sort of song. <laughs> yeah, do you think maybe the album sort of transcends the... Uh, relationship because obviously you're it's how you're processing all of that but then now you've sort of hopefully passed that stage it's the en album as an entity is still there and uh, yeah it's I mean a separate thing in itself it is I, I guess what's becoming evident the more people I talk to is that what I think the album means to me is very very different to what the album seems to mean to other people so like for me it's all about the message to her and the response and all of that sort of stuff and since you know i've committed to learning spanish as well like probably for the minuscule possibility that at some point i'll maybe bump into her and she'll scream in my face a bunch of spanish and like i might have the chance of understanding and responding in the same language that that could be that's kind of the, one of the reasons why i thought it'd be cool to learn spanish um, but then it's kind of transcended, like you say, and turned into something else that maybe she was the person who um, got me interested in the culture. But now it's not just that one person. There's plenty of things about Spain that are great. And um, 
Yeah. You know, there's plenty of other different Spanish girls as well, you know. And the, yeah, their craft beer scene is surprisingly good. Because I've been to mm. Barcelona quite a few times and um, we started finding these little cool little beer bars and best chicken burger I had in my life was in Barcelona. <laughs> cool story. Nice, typical Spanish meal. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah. But like tr- literally transcendent and uh, like amazing beers. So like, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, and I guess in the sense that if I hadn't have done the album or gone through this experience and ended up learning the language, then I wouldn't be able to maybe consider going on holiday or visiting other countries and being able to speak the language as well. Like, I mean, it's not anywhere brilliant at the moment, but I've been doing it for about two years and I'm, I'm doing it without really knowing like what level I'm at because it's not like there's beginner class and then yeah. there's GCSE class and A-level and university class. It's like, well, we're just teaching you things. And this is, I think some of the stuff that I'm learning is at an intermediate level, like B1, B2 sort of level at the moment. And I'm just like, yeah, but I don't even know most of the vegetables. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but it's interesting, you know, I've, um, I've since started going to like a Spanish speakers meetup in London where there's normally about six of us, mostly English. Occasionally there's a Spanish person. It's like language exchange. Yeah. So the Spanish girl or whatever wants to speak English more and we want to speak Spanish more. And it's just a bit of a two-hour chat sort of thing. And that's been really cool. And like I think really important um, to kind of tie it back in some way to musician things. Like now that I'm doing something that I'm, I guess, not 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 very knowledgeable of like with a guitar i've been to university about it i teach it i know a lot about guitar but with this it's like feeling like a beginner and when i'm listening to people speaking and like oh well i think you meant that and i know oh i don't know what to say back i can't think fast enough you know it's like it's i think it's nice if you are very knowledgeable in one area to put yourself in another area where you're the exact opposite a bit like grade eight guitar but grade one piano at the same time or something yeah i've been doing just learning a lot of different things like um internet marketing and then like video editing graphic editing just lots of different skills and things like you're always sort of a new i hope you'll be times. learning how to tiktok as well because that's what us musicians are supposed to be doing these days isn't it tiktoking yeah i've just started to get my head around instagram so i'm not going to be <laughs> twerking on tiktok or anything at the moment just like, <laughs> so the production was the final stage um oh no it wasn't there because you got some cds made was that right and you had some issues with getting those produced yeah i mean the the mixing i went through two producers and it took me about two and a half years to mix the album um mainly because uh, the first producer was a mate of mine from Sheffield. We played in a metal band together when we were younger, 16, 17. Uh, and he studied production, I think, at Leeds College of Music. Um, and, you know, we'd not been hanging out for a long time and then put a message up on Facebook and was like, need someone to help me produce. And he got in touch and was like, yeah, okay, this could be cool. Schoolmates working together and let's do it together. But it did mean with me living in London and him living in Sheffield that that meant we could only work on it like in Sheffield. That's about a four hour drive, isn't it? Yeah. So I had to drive up Monday, maybe do six till t- six till 11, six till midnight, maybe. But that includes, you know, chatting and catching up. And he's got a he had a fiance at that point in time as well. 
Um, so there's just a lot of other things, your mates as well. You're not there purely on business. There was a bit of money involved, but it was not a lot of money. And it was like, it, yeah, I think it just became a bit, I think the truth is, is that neither of us really understood just how big of a job it was going to be when we right. started it. And then it became this mammoth Leviathan that just like took over and became a bit unmanageable and, I got told that he wanted to work on his own. And I was like, well, but you don't really know what a lot of these parts are for or what to do with them. So I feel that's a bit of a bad idea. And then weeks passed and nothing got done, never got sent any mixes and we weren't working on it very much. So I think after 13 months, and then he um, told me that his missus was moving to LA. She got a job in the States and he'd, been accepted with the husband visa sort of thing as well so he was moving to the states as well right. it's like right now i've got like one month to go and i've not really heard any recordings it's like and then he sent it me a week before he left and i mean they were mixed but nothing that i wanted so it was a little bit annoying to have spent 13 months schlepping up and down the m1 like yeah. all this time you know so many weeks and just right all of that work is wasted go start again Again, so that's um, on the other angle. So if you'd have um, paid someone, even if it's with mates rates, and set a time and said, like, right, here's the stuff. Let's like knock it out in a week or two. Then it's it's never going to be perfect, but you have to make decisions. And say, right, this has got to be done by now, or we've got to achieve this many songs in this many days. Like, and it like forces the process, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think this is where I mean that was August 2019. Uh, when I'd kind of finished with the first producer and was kind of thinking about the second producer. Uh, and, you know, at that point in time, you know, 2019, so that's what, five years in at that point, I'm being like, oh, my world has just crumbled. Like, I've got this two-year project that I'm five years into and now I've just wasted a year. So I I was very angry and I was not so much angry but more just like you know, like desolate like oh my god what's going to happen um how am i going to resolve this because all i could see is that if i'm going to hire someone professional it's going to cost a lot of money that i don't have so i spoke to to bill the producer and we'd worked together before i'd recorded with him on a, on a blues band album that um that we did about 10 years ago before that and uh, I just ranted down the phone to him. It's like, this has happened and that's happened. I've got this to do and that to do and all this, and blah, 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 blah. And he's like, Steve, just breathe a minute. It's like, we'll come around, have a chat. We'll see what the situation is. And maybe we'll do a track together. And if you like it, then we can just talk about an agreement or something. So, um, yep. Yeah, so we, we met up and I showed him what I had. I showed him that I had everything. I, sh I told him that I was 100% happy with the arrangement which I think is something worth its weight in gold as a producer. You know, if the client says to you, I don't need to change anything. All that's there is it just needs buffing, and polishing and mixing well, you know. That's what I do because a friend of mine uses the same software as I do. And then so I'll do all the editing, which is massive. But then like, right, the project is complete. I need you to make it sound good. Mm. I mean, as it turned out, we did change a couple of things, but they weren't like, major parts you know um 
But so then we cracked on with the first song, which was track two on the album, Novia. Um, and we had a go at it and it sounded different to how I produced it with, uh, with Ash, the first producer. Um, and in some ways, what me and Ash achieved together sonically could be described as better than what we achieved, me and Bill, because it sounded a bit more sharp and a bit more, the drum sound at least, I remember sound being really impressed with. But then again, the rest of it let it down and I've got a different sound with Bill, um, which he himself, you know, admitted that, you know, you could work with three different producers and get three completely different albums and be happy with all of them. Yeah, yeah. And that's what was interesting because I'd said to him initially that I had this sound in my head uh, and with this one song, it was very difficult to put that into sounds in some ways. Um, and it, we had an argument over that track as well at one point. And it's like, you, I don't think you've got this sound. You don't know what you're talking about. Oh, I'm blam slam the sort of thing or what have you. It was a horrible moment. But what I realized at that point is that I didn't have an idea of a sound in my head. I had a, an idea of a set of characteristics that once they're achieved, it's done. And right. I think all it boiled down to was that the drums in context sounded like they should be with the bass and the guitars and the vocals. They all sounded believable. That's all I was trying to achieve is that the sound you hear is credible. It's believable. It's not, it's not MIDI or it's not produced poorly. It's just, there's no effects. It's just, that's what it is, but it's as good as it can be and pumped as high as it can be. Like I like um I like heavy metal stuff and the production and the power that you get from those produced records. And in pop music, I rarely hear anything with like smacks you in the face and like bam, that's a there's a chorus, you know. It seems quite gentle in some singer-songwriter terms. So I was trying to achieve a pop album, but with rock and heavy music production. You wanted some impact on it. Yeah. I didn't want the vocals to be sitting like proud of all the instruments. I want the guitars to be as loud as the vocals, which is what created the arguments of that something has to suffer, Steve. You can't have everything loud. I was like, yes, you can. <laughs> you, you truly can. It's possible. I can hear it. You know, it's, I, I, can, I can hear that it will work. It's, and we just need to find the right way of describing to you what I want to hear. And like, one of the other probably more insignificant details to most people, but that was such a big thing to me was that I, you know, we'd entered into this agreement. We're now into um, the contract, which uh, was to about the value of about 20 grand for this guy. So now I'm shot my budget, you know, 20, 10 times already now at this point. Uh, and uh I'm committed and I didn't know where I was going to get the money from. Um, but fortunately, um, my dad had come into a different sort of situation and he was getting his pension at this point and things have turned out a bit better for him at this point. He was in a position to help me. Um, and the three options we had with Bill was that I would, he would, he would charge nothing and work for free. But then if a job that was paid that came in, that would always take priority and I'd have to reschedule for a different day. Or we did it in a hybrid sense where I paid him some of the fee that he would ask for and then we'd recoup the remainder from album sales or royalties or something like that. Um, or the other way, which was just a complete 100% buyout, which was a bit cheaper, um, 
but still a hell of a lot of money compared to what I thought I was going to spend. And it turned out that over the year, uh, the year and a half that I was working, that we were able to kind of cover that ourselves uh, within the family. But still, I'm, I'm in debt to at least 25, 30 grand, essentially, for just services of other people towards the album. With this producer, like, had you known him previously and like, checked out his previous work? Yeah, I, um, Bill Gautier, I, I recorded with him when I was part of um, the, the GFB, the Gary Fletcher Band, um, who I got, was lucky enough to go on tour with um, and play quite a few gigs with. Gary Fletcher from the blues band, Paul Jones, other people like that, um, Tom McGuinness. Um, and uh, I'd recorded with Bill on Gary's album. So Bill had already known about how like ridiculously picky and perfectionist I was, you know, about yeah. everything. So I think that's why, but he also knew of the quality that I'd recorded with him before so that he'd at least expect a certain professionalism, I would have hoped. Um, and that's why I think it ended up being a really good fit because um, Bill knows his equipment like well. And he also likes the analog side of things and tape machines and tape compressed and valve things and all this geeky nonsense that makes the recording sound better, but you don't really know why. You might just be running something through that unit. It's not even like turned up. It's just yeah. passing through it and it makes a difference. And also he's record he works a lot for you know studios in Covent Garden like 30 years ago or whatever it was and was a really big important producer working occasionally for the BBC and lots of TV stuff and um, was connected to like uh, like Mark Knopfler and Dire Straits and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Mark's a good friend of his um, and in by that way I mean Pick Withers was Dire Straits' original drummer who also played with us in Gary Fletcher's band, the blues band that I recorded with right. Bill. Um, so yeah, there's some interesting big names in there. Um, uh, and I, I, I know Pick Withers, he's a great guy. And we were on tour in Sweden and bonded quite a lot during that tour as well. So I'm really interested to hear what he will think of it. I'm sure Bill will pass the CD on at some point, but yeah, there's um, there's a lot of different sort of people that I've met that have led me to get to this point, I suppose. So after the production was finished, um, what's the next stage after that? So then, I mean, we'd started. I'd started the artwork with Anna. Like I think it was 2016 or 2017 or something like that. Of course, the whole thing was useless if you've not got the audio. So the audio has to be done first and then the artwork. Um, and the, the artwork started out as just an eight-page booklet with some photos that I'd taken from the time. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll put the lyrics in as well. And then it turned into a big 24-page booklet. And, <laughs> right. And there's each page, you know, you've got every little specific detail, like lyric um, formatting, legends and you know what the process is do you put punctuation in do you not like not having done this before um it was a bit of a i guess like a bit of a blind man searching his way through the forest trying to get out but but we finally got there um and 
then it wasn't so much the problem of working with a graphic designer because like Anna and I got it done. We got to a point in December 2020, 2021, where it's like, right, that's it. Sign it off. There's no more changes to be made. I'm happy with it. We just need to send it to the CD company. That's a good feeling. But that, then, it? Yeah, it's a great feeling. Um, but then January 22 came and it was like, right, now we're dealing with this. And I think they're obviously used to dealing with the part of the record company that deals with the CD and the person knows what's expected of them, not working with the artist a lot of the time. And there were problems because, you know, um, Anna was, um, I knew Anna, the graphic designer from, from Northolt school. Like I taught her guitar when she was in year nine. And that was kind of the point of why I used her. She's got a Spanish surname. She's Anna Alvarez, like um, Rosa. So it's like, it was it was nice to have a Spanish person working on the album, <laughs> yeah. you know, just to tie in with the theme. And um, and so that's why we work together. And I guess you could argue that I could have gone to, say, a website, you know, where they just do CD artwork and that's what they do all day long. And, you know, some unknown person I just tell the ideas to. But I thought it'd be more personal if, like, I worked with the artist rather than just sending it off to a company to do. And it, I think it has worked out better for that. But obviously, when you're doing it as, I don't think Anna's done a CD for a CD company before, and neither have I. So it was a bit of a journey of discovery. And the company uh, came back to me with certain things going, oh, this is not right. Can you sort that out? And this is not right. Can you sort that out? And I don't really know what half of this means, but like, okay, I'll try. And it just took a long time. So about four months of fast wow, till the okay. end of April, like from I paid the CD company in January and took delivery of the CDs in mid-May. So, <laughs> yeah, it, and I started this the conversation with the CD company in July 2021. So that's what, nine months, essentially nearly 10 months of toing and froing and phone calls and oh man the um <laughs> one of the things that was annoying was the, the the code on the album you know the album sleeve code yeah which you and i know that it means nothing really doesn't it you don't use it for anything other than just to see it on the side of the album and referencing or something but i when when we were mixed in the album that's when the ddp file gets made that's the master audio with all yeah. the, the ISRC codes um, and all the tracking for the royalties and all that sort of stuff. And I'd got this idea that I could like put another little idea into the CD code, which I only thought of when I was doing the artwork, which was about a year after we'd mastered the audio. So then I've got masters with the wrong code on them. So I then had to figure out a way to, to change the DDP file, which when I spoke to Bill, he'd just moved house. His computer was in cardboard boxes in the garage. It's like, you right. couldn't have wrote it, you know, just CD company says, oh, just send us a new thing and like, that'll be fine. Well, the guy can't do it because his computer's not set up. Oh, well, can you do it? Well, yeah, but we'll have to charge you for it. It was like 72 quid for a DDP file, just for right. them to load my file in, change the code, press save, send it back, which I thought was a bit extortionate. But, and then I, as they'd sent me their new file, 
I thought, well, I don't know much about DDP files, so I'll send it to Bill. He can download a cheap, um, a free DDP player and look at it and analyze it and tell me if it's okay. And yeah, I sent it to him and he's like, no, there's weird things in this file that don't really add up. I, I, just give me a few days. I'll get the computer out. I'll sort it. Because it's his name on the line as well. It's his production. Yeah. So he wants the file to be right. And th that took another extra bit of time. And there's a thing with like um, the logo, which I know this will be audio, but like you can see that the, the, the logo's orange on the, yeah. in the corner. It's supposed to be white. But they wrote to me saying the white might not come out as you expect it. So we, we, we urge you to put a big black line around it. It's supposed to be as if you don't see it. Like almost you'd miss it sort of thing. So anyway, I said to them, all right, just drop a tiny little bit of what color, like yellow or pink or whatever, just to make it legible, just so that it passes your criteria. What did they do? ink dropper go on to the back find a dark orange color and use that instead and i was just like like you not even listen to what i said it's i mean these are the things that you don't realize when you start putting an album together because the yeah so the ddp and all those things so when you um you've recorded the individual songs but then it's got to be sort of queued up on the album and then you've got to decide like how much pause between each track you know, like yeah, well, that was the thing. As I mean, well. And then when you had the artwork done, it's done probably on a computer and then what might be like painted physically and then scanned in. And then it's got to be sent over in the correct file format. And then it's printing that physically is slightly different to viewing it. So there's like when I had an album done, so the artist, um, sort of friend of a friend who did some really cool stuff. And then, yeah, the CD company were like, we need it in this file format or it needs to be like, it's not like red, green, blue, is it? It's like, cyan uh, cmyk yeah. isn't it yeah yeah so but, it's like there's it's got to be like transferable between those formats so like even if you've like done the artwork and recorded the songs there's still all that kind of like jigging around of all the elements to then get it ready to be made into a physical cd yeah i mean what i think what was always going to be the case for this album is that there's going to be two different versions of it this version that i have right now is the release version i suppose because um the logo is the wrong color the artwork is when i look at the booklet like the colors don't they're not popping vibrantly yeah, like. yeah, yeah. Um, and i think that that could be something that if i go back to anna and we can just brighten up the the color scheme and stuff and change it and modify it a bit and then put the logo in the right color and then the second one will have like the barcode on the back corner as well and that's how it'll be identifiable as well. The main copy that I hope to use for the rest of my indefinite life, I suppose, will be the barcode version. But this version is the tester version, I suppose, really. Yeah, I did that for mine as well, because the, the album cover is basically like red, white and black colours. And they sent me um, like a sample CD through and the colours just didn't pop. So then I went back to the artist and said, like, can you make it really more vibrant? because it doesn't quite translate through print, and they sent another one, and was like, yeah, okay, that's cool. But it's, again, you don't quite know until it's been physically made, and there's obviously yeah, and physical that's... limitations with the printing mechanisms and these kind of things as well. So it's... And that's one of the things, I mean, they, they also said that, like, on, in the inside, in, like, the thanks page or what have you, that, that you can see it's basically like a black background with white text on it, and there's lots of small text. So it's like they said... Um, the text should be minimum five pitch and we used 5.2 
and they still warned me saying that you might not be able to read it. I was just like, wow. <laughs> I need and to it, be able to read it. <laughs> well, yeah, and of course, like, it's come through and it's perfectly legible. There's nothing wrong with it at all. Um, and I think the other one was like the, the CD itself is like, oh, you wanted the silver writing to be like the, the transparent nature of the disc rather yeah. than a, a, an ink on top. And they, they warned about that, but that's worked out fine as well. So, um, yeah, the only thing that I didn't realise is that I think I've got my website wrong on the CD. <laughs> oh, God. Although it's, it's not like the most important thing. I realise that it's it's not actually www.steveling.uk. It's actually just steveling.uk. <laughs> it's oh, not the biggest yeah. problem in the world. But So um, how's it feel? I mean, it might be different for me. Like After that, like just to physically hold the CD. Well, yeah, it's... It's been an ongoing saga that a lot of my friends and family have been aware of for like the last however many years and are all just tired of it dragging on, really. But eight years, me, that's two Olympics. Well, I was thinking of it in a different way because, like, being in a you know, previously a guitar teacher and stuff, I thought it might be nice to go around GCSE music departments and give each, well, not every single one, but at least one in Sheffield where I went, and maybe Norfolk where I worked to start with give them the, the CD and maybe do an assembly as well. Like, and can you imagine saying to a high school student, can you think of a project that is longer than all of your time in high school, both years of college and the first year of university? Or if they're GCSE students, like this is literally half your lifetime. Yeah, <laughs> like... exactly. Yeah. And I just think to put it in that perspective would be, quite interesting for a 15 16 year old or something like that um especially i don't want to tar all teenagers with the same brush but obviously they're now growing up in an environment where music is free and instantly accessible which can be great but then it's very devalued so they say look you probably imagine that like you know rihanna rocks up and she's a big studio the record company's paying for it and stuff gets done and money happens but like here's what it can be like another level like this is the process and it's very personal individual but like this blood sweat and tears went into this you know so um it's not just like oh here's a song like there's a lot that went into this i i would hope that the musical landscape like you're referring to the the world of free i think it's good i think it will write itself eventually everything always does like you get to the point where you know we grew up through the the napster the lime wire era um, where when you got it for free there was a problem that came with it and you understood that you were taking a risk to your computer by using LimeWire Um, whereas now LimeWire has become Spotify and actually now the quality is fine and there's no virus risk and actually you're paying for the privilege so the risk has gone but the free has remained and I, I do feel that the vibe is there that everybody knows that the music that's coming out of the charts at the moment is is kind of not as good somehow. I don't know how you describe it in what specific way, but it just doesn't feel as good as the the music from other decades. Like you could even see it by like the covers gigs, you know, playing in a pub at the weekend, and the manager of the pub um, tells me that she likes the songs that I play because a lot of the time I'm playing songs from the 60s, 70s and 80s. And I'm not just doing modern songs like Justin Bieber and Dua Lipa and Jess Glynn and all this other sort of stuff. It's like, 
there's less to get into, isn't there? There's less detail on those songs a lot of the time, especially well, yeah. when you strip it down to acoustic level. I think even if you kind of go away from the the actual mechanics and building blocks of the song, as to going back to like we say, like the lyrical meanings, like from before, like if if a song has been written to sell, a lot of the time the lyrics are quite impersonal. Like they don't feel attached to one person. It could be applying to anyone, and therefore if it's, it's got to have general, mass appeal. Yeah, yeah. If it's a bit general, then it's it feels like it can be more disposable. And a lot of those songs from those key decades, the sixties and seventies, I think they just they didn't realize at the time that they were riding this magical ride that was working and firing on all cylinders for so many people. Like it wasn't just rock bands, it wasn't just Bon Jovi and Metallica and you know all those shreddy sort of things. There was ABBA and you know like Chic and all the other different genres of of guitar-based bands that were seeming to enjoy success because they were recording with people and with instruments. And now it seems, even like my album is, is modern in a way that it's one man and a drummer uh, to create all of this. It's not like four guys in a room recorded playing together, yeah. although that's what I've tried to simulate as much as possible, that each part is each instrument is its own personality and the bass player might be different to the acoustic guitar player but whether that effect comes across because you know there's only one guy doing it all you haven't got four you haven't got the, the guns and roses appetite for destruction like imagery you know the yeah. back cover where they're all just sat around hanging out at the studio or what have you so i don't know i think there is yeah it's a it's a strange time and to to combat that world of free and go, well, yeah, but if we all know things are rubbish now, well, then why are we going to keep doing the same things as we're doing now? Because it's obviously not working. I think, like you said, things are starting to write because um, people are more interested in the provenance of the food, you know, like um, more organic stuff or eat locally, like ethically sourced things like food, clothing, um, generally being a bit more sort of conscious of where things are coming from. So, yeah, maybe you're right that things are moving gradually in that direction. There's obviously still going to be a market for like mass-produced stuff because sometimes people just want a McDonald's, you know. Yes, or yes, things. exactly. It'll always be there. It'll always be there. But I think it'll get to the point where rather than this trend of everybody going to McDonald's because all of a sudden it seems like the right thing to do, there's going to be people going, yeah, but GBK is way better, isn't it? I know it costs a bit more, but like it is way better. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's just like, well, people are willing to pay 15 quid rather than five or 7.99 or whatever it is. And it's that psychological shift of the cheap thing. Yeah, we recognize it's cheap, but it, the, the expensive thing is better, you know. So I think that is that is going to be, you know, what where, where it goes, essentially. Like, And for me, at least, I, I've taken eight years of my life. I've spent that much money and earned nothing from it for it so far and it feels like i've got to give myself some chance to earn something from it and even seeing other uh guitar institute drum tech teachers um i saw a post from pete cater the other day saying how do, does anybody know how i remove my music from spotify because <laughs> i'm not going to make a dime you know if while ever i'm while ever it's up there so everybody knows that that's what's going on but Musicians don't make money while it's up there, but you can listen to it for free. So 
if the people are starting to go, well, I'm not going to make anything while it's there. Yeah, let's pull it down. Then all the good stuff gets removed from the platform and you're left with a platform with just the dregs, surely, by definition. It's more of a um, like an advertisement, isn't it? Like people go there and they can find out about your music or um, experience that they wouldn't be able to find it otherwise. So it's it's like a free advert yeah, in a way that I people think might not the, see. There's something like that's going that's changed us all since the MySpace days. Like I don't know whether you'd agree, but a lot of my musical mates agree that like myspace was like the pinnacle of where social media kind of joined and met real life because yeah while we were at the guitar institute it was all about having your your top eight and who's in your top friends or what have you but there was a player with four tracks and i bought cds off bands on myspace you click on the thing and then send it through pay the postage and bam they're the cds in your house and it felt like that was a good thing you know you could the band put the demo up and you could buy it What's not to love? I think a lot of times as well, it was often like people you met and you knew personally as well. So like you'd use that and you'd go to gigs, you know, from bands you'd listen to on MySpace. And um, we used it as our like online demo to get gigs around London and things. And um, yeah, then people would contact us through there. It was it's a different time. I mean, that was like oh, almost 20 years ago. So it's... Yeah, yeah. And And now it's changed into like the Spotify thing of the, if your first five seconds are not good enough, then good luck getting anywhere. It's like, music's not about that. Like, all you have to say is shine on you, crazy diamond. And then that puts an end to that argument for me. Like, would you tell David Gilmore, uh, just forget that first seven minutes, come straight in at the verse. <laughs> yeah. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> it's like, I just think that, if you're going to be bound by the platform and write your music to sell or to be more popular on a platform for specific reasons, like which people do, which people do, I think you, you're cutting your own experience somehow. You, you kind of just not, I don't know. It just seems like you're more for the platform rather than the art, let's say. Yeah. It'd be like um, just making cheap, easy food to sell, but not, really caring about the content of it well yeah i mean this this idea that i've been kind of putting around a bit like um more recently is forget about music for a second let's change the mp3 or the, the song to a toy it's a like a toys r us situation so imagine that the, the manager of toys r us comes up to you and your family or what have you whether you're the kid or the adult i don't know um and they say so uh, you can you can come in here and play with any toy that you want, whether it's open or boxed or new or used or just play with any toy you like. Just come here and pay us ten pound like every week or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and while ever the store's open, you can come in and play on the aisle, you know, wherever it is, like make a mess or whatever it is. And you can you can play with try any toy you want. And the kids are like, whoa, that's brilliant. Just trying things left, right, and center. The parents are happy, you know, the kids are happy. So cut to the um, the phone call, the phone rings, um, manager picks his phone and says, Hello, it's like, oh, this is so and so from Tommy, or you know, insert another toy brand here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's like, oh, so what's the response to the new toy? And like, and he, oh yeah, kids love it, brilliant. Oh, yeah, it's going down really well. Oh, that sounds great. Um, 
So uh, how many sales have you got for this month? Zero. Yeah, but you said they loved it. Well, yeah, but you haven't sold any. Well, these are like 60 quid a remote control car or whatever. How can you have not sold anything? Like, oh, well, we just let the kids play with it for free in the shop. And then we that take is money. Spotify, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't work in toys. You know, the, the company would not have it. It's like, no, you're not letting a 60 quid product be played with for free. I'm sorry, that's just not how it works. But in music, we apparently need to be that desperate to go, put it everywhere. Just please listen to it. Listen to it on mute. I don't care. It's like, that's what we've become as a, as a I guess, a demographic of people. I've seen more than one person post something, words to that effect, saying, please click on my YouTube video. I'm nearly at 50,000 views. If you could just click it and just put it on in the background, whether you watch it or not, I don't care. That's just soul destroying to me. Like, have you no self worth? <laughs> it's, yeah, because when I hit that algorithm, get some more views, and then that can translate into real money eventually down the line. But it's, uh... I guess it can, but like, I I don't want to be a social media person. I don't want to work for YouTube. I don't want to work for Instagram or TikTok. I don't. In that way, if you're constantly upload, uploading to social media, it's like being an employee at Toys R Us. You're just going there to help kids do what they need to do. And it is, but at the same time, it is a tool that you can use. Um, you know, obviously, it goes both ways. So, like, you can just use it for your own gain. You have to put time and effort into it, or get someone to manage that for you. But then, it is a way. Like, I think it was uh, Pete Thorne was um, was a well-known guitar player was saying to me when it's like oh look i'm gonna do a tiktok video or instagram or like it's like yeah i understand you've your career has done well you know but for someone coming up at least it's another option that they can use to start things you know so it's yeah i kind of view instagram as a bit of a like um a necessary evil because i can use it to promote things although i'm not desperately keen on the platform but then i can use it you know so the one thing that has to be said and i don't know where you stand on this but for me, since I've lessened my use of social media, Instagram and Facebook, my general mental health has improved no end. Yeah, I generally, um, tend, like I said, I try to use it rather than have it use me. And um, obviously people have that's their own good, degrees yeah, in that. Yeah, that's a good way of saying it. But um, yeah, so many people are just like, just glued to their phones. And even like, um, just the other day, just some, some woman, she's walking her dog, just like looking at the phone, like, you're not in the moment you know and um like i was i think 18 when i got my first phone and by that point it was you know like text only and phone calls you could only store 10 texts you mm. know but um like even now like in social situations i try to like just keep the phone in the pocket and like just interact with people more and like sometimes the phone does come out or needs to or whatever but try and like really minimize that and like just look people in the eye you know like talk to them like yeah yeah we can totally. take a couple of pictures yeah but like just be here like don't Oh, I've got to scroll. But this is it. I think it's blended into something else for me. Like, I'm a lover of this. Um, I think it originally comes from like Newton's laws of motion. I think is it each? Was it every action has an equal and opposite reaction? Right? Uh, did you do physics at, at college? Yeah, that's, is that the first law of thermodynamics? One of them, anyway. Yeah. Um, and I like it because it works in music as well like in a weird way like the the lightest note 
of Lydian is the darkest note of Locrian, the sharp four flat five effect. Ah, that's interesting. So when you lay them all out like we would have known, going Lydian, Ionian, Dorian, uh, you know, then what, Aeolian, Phrygian, Locrian, I'm sure I missed, Mixolydian, I missed Mixolydian out. Um, but that kind of going from light to dark in a scale sense is that the, the most interesting note of the Lydian scale is the sharp four, which would be F sharp if it was C, Lydian. But then in C, Locrian, the darkest scale, the, the most interesting note is the same interval, the flat five. I was thinking about that, just, yeah, we're going to go all theory. But, um, like in each mode, it's generally like the flat five that drives it. So you've got the, in Phrygian, yes, yeah, so you've got the flat two and the flat fifth. Flat two and the fifth, yeah. And then Lydian, you've got the root and the sharp four. And then in Dorian, you've got the minor third and the natural six. And so six, it's, yeah. it's that tension. It's the flat five that drives attention. Mm. And I think there's, there's something that I've, I've just let my sort of bumbling brain turn that sort of theory into other things where it feels like things that are, things that are designed to be good often end up being really bad. And I, I mean the internet with this one. It was designed to help us and make things better for us. But all it's done is turn us into a bunch of people who can't remember anything and don't know how to socialise anymore. There, there have been some benefits. I mean, things like scientific collaboration and, you know, there's, there's many things, ways that the internet does connect. But yeah, like, I, I mean, if you said to people, like, senses. yeah, if you said to someone 100 years ago, like, you're going to have a device in your pocket that can communicate anywhere in the world, download almost anything among human knowledge and you're going to use that to look at pictures of cats and start arguments with strangers <laughs> <laughs> you know like this would get mostly what people use their phone for or just posting another photo of themselves like oh here's me doing this with my hand you know like yeah i mean it i i had this kind of conversation with my mum and my dad and i like to kind of find out where they think modern life is at the moment and like I, I showed him a video um i think his name is, is it joey z joey z something like that tunes or something a youtuber guy and he's one of these guys who just hates modern people who are just on their phones phone zombies you know all that sort yeah. of thing and he did this half an hour rant about um just the girls who get all the cosmetic surgery to look good on instagram and then like they get millions of followers on instagram but you what see them walking through Westfield or whatever, say hello, and they just like run a mile because they're so scared of everything. And um, my mum was like, "This, this just seems unrecognizable to my childhood." That's what she said. Yeah, and ours, yeah, and ours, and I, I feel that this wave of having grown up with the internet and like. I guess when did the internet really become apparent for us? It must have been sort of during the end of high school, maybe. Yeah. Like year ten, year eleven, maybe. It was you didn't definitely didn't have a phone in your pocket that could go on the internet, but there were computers in the classroom that you could go and go on to. You could look up a bus timetable. That's about it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or something rubbish like that, but. It, it wasn't like so important like you didn't see people taking pictures of themselves on the way to the bus stop you just didn't one thing like because um, i'm sure it is in other fields as well i'm not an expert in other fields but like with music like people are getting better because of the internet like this access to so much learning and so much resources that you get young kids that are coming up with like staggering abilities and i um, agree things I do are agree. progressing like that there's um 
and some people were saying like oh yeah but they should have taken a lot longer to learn i was like yeah but they all just do it quicker so like why not and then the next generation that can then take it into some like stratosphere like where like jacob collie is heading with all his crazy stuff or whatever you know so it's interesting that things are advancing like that i don't know where, where you would weigh in on this though but it's, that's great and i agree that that's great that learning via youtube and google and whatever else has helped people learn instruments and languages much more quickly but for guitar players at least it's changed the the, the landscape from wanting to grow up and be the next Slash, the next Paul Gilbert, the next Dave Mustaine, the next whoever it is, um, to then becoming, oh, well, my, my hero's a guitar teacher, not a performer. Like, so I want to be a YouTube guitar teacher. So I want to record cover versions and teach people how to play songs. And I feel that a lot of people uh, gravitate towards... Uh, recording themselves and putting it online as quickly as possible rather than say doing something like i've done which is one product in eight years rather than i don't know eight videos a week i think as well yeah because sometimes you can just be like a content whore so to speak you just like or content factory just knocking it out yeah. whereas you know some people are saying like oh like the album's dead and things you just put out singles but then the best songs on an album are often not the singles and also you like I just want to have a snapshot of this time like I've got more to say you know than just like what you'd cram into a single and it's a formulaic structure so you want to like just really stretch that and some of my songs have been like maybe like broadly single structure and it's like verse chorus verse chorus bridge but that might be over like six minutes with like time changes and all this kind of stuff in it so it's like there's more in there I want to say more like I don't want to just hit the singles just for sales and say, well, I've got a bit more attention or this single got this many plays or this much recognition because but this it's, is it. less, I think this... it's watered down content, isn't it? Essentially. Yeah. And this, this goes into a, I think a deeper sort of situation of, well, where do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a mainstream artist? Do you see yourself as an underground artist? Do you see yourself as someone who wants to be known for who you are rather than what your work is? Or like, I didn't know, what Slash's voice sounded like until I saw him on Top Gear. <laughs> yeah, good point. I, I had no, I had no interest of what his accent was, or or Axl Rose, or any of the other ones. Uh, I mean, I'd been to see Paul Gilbert at a guitar clinic in Doncaster as a kid, and really enjoyed that because you felt like it was a special event that, like, not everyone knew about. You were that in that clique of like guitar geek nerds that bought the magazine and knew about the thing because it was advertised in the magazine and you got the free CD and then all the guitar players kind of knew a bunch of stuff that lots of other people didn't. But the kind of globalization of YouTube and everything has meant that everyone knows everything now. And there's no, there's no local anymore. There's just shook it on the internet and you either like it or you don't. It's different, isn't it? I mean, I'd love to be like, in my early 20s like in the mid 80s when all that kind of stuff was going on but then yeah the internet does bring with all this massive information and exposure like opportunities as well so i think would i have struggled more in the 80s you know like i don't know we'll never know you know um but it's like the opportunities i here... think the answer is yes we would have struggled more because fewer people actually made it but the people who actually made it seem to be better than the people who are making it now even though more people can make it now yeah oh yeah because i guess if more people are making it then and i guess it could even you could even take it down the christmas songs route like i think the christmas number one like the ones that we all know and we all hate every december like they came from a certain time period when 
people didn't know just how sellable things were until they figured out the formula and then it was like oh right okay just do the mid-tempo shuffle sleigh bells cool yeah we've got a, a christmas song brilliant and it worked and then they figured it out and then after a certain point you stop getting good christmas singles like what's the most modern christmas song you can think of um probably the darkness when was that then was that about 2000 no uh that would have been about maybe 10 years ago time at the bell's end do you think it'll be a classic like last christmas or um it's not going to be up there but it's sort of like tagged onto the back of that um it's interesting yeah that uh girls listening to on the radio that I mentioned there like writing the lyrics about the time and the green sweater so she's actually working on a christmas album um but like it's going to be really dark <laughs> it's a crew it like because it's so sickly at christmas songs and so this will be like there's a song called something like or line like i don't want to be single on the 25th and it's like like really dark like yeah that's good it's like really a twist on it yeah i guess like they all are like that aren't they the the ones that we all know they're a bit twee and a bit like promoting the standard christmas isn't it but well i mean how how do you go forward from that do you do you go even further to say that the white Christmas is not really, we don't need snow. We've got warm world now. So Sweden hasn't got like the winter wonderland anymore or whatever it is. It's, I mean, a lot of that's nostalgic, isn't it? Um, and it just kind of gets knocked out every year. And I mean, Christmas music is generally some of my least favorite music out of all. And my idea of hell would be like Mariah Carey on repeat. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it is for most people as well. Like, and for me too. Um, but they are probably some of the most high selling or, or high royalty earning songs in the world. Like if you are not yeah, consistent, yeah. Well, he gets, uh, about half a million a year. I think just, just from it's yeah. Christmas. Wow. That's, that's the thing. But that was again from a time where sales actually translated into royalties and i don't know how many people actually realize that spotify netflix youtube don't actually provide royalties for the creators like, i think though that's... just quickly going back to that uh naughty holder one um because i mean it's used in things like you know like supermarket adverts and the general i mean because that was in the 70s wasn't it so that would be more our sort of like parents generation and then as that passes through and time goes on, it will be less relevant to people now or like going going forward. So I think even those kind of things will phase out. Yeah, because I mean, I mean do, you, do you find that you play Christmas songs around December when you're gigging or do you get to the pub like I do? And I try you've got the song, <laughs> your song, You're ready to sing them if people want them, but you ask the people in the pub if they want a Christmas song and everyone's like, no, please don't, you know. And it's it's a bit of a weird thing because you're expected to play it, but the punters don't really want it unless they've like it's, it's a Christmas party and you know it's an actual event. If you just go to the pub, it's just yeah. I mean, I'm not uh, I, yeah trying to avoid Christmas music when I can. Um, <laughs> I mean, New Year like you do all Lang Syne or something, but like Christmas songs, yeah, people. I mean, because um, yeah, so they, something like um, yeah that Naughty Holder one, people would have nostalgia remember that to that time in their lives and that time in history and like but now people have different memories of christmas or um for me like mariah carey's one like it was really 
banded around when I was at, when we were at college, so it was about 2004 or something. And I was living in a household. There were seven of us. There was like three couples of me, and like there was like ah, it's Christmas, and I was like, this is not a good time. So like I associate <laughs> that with like pretty miserable, like or like when that was on, I was like really feeling down about stuff. So and and it's so sickly and mass produced. Like I can't get behind that song at all. So for me, it's got quite bad connotations. And then Noddy Holder, like I can't stand his voice. Like there's if it's like a jazz Christmas song, like yeah, I could, that's okay. But like most Christmas music, I just for various reasons like makes me want to be sick. I guess the only one that makes me think about um, you know, like you said about being single on Christmas, the kind of negative side of it. I guess Last Christmas, the Wham song, is probably the one that comes closest out of the popular mainstream ones, isn't it? Last Christmas, I gave you my heart, but the very next day, you gave it away. You bitch <laughs> <laughs> I was never really that into um, Wham and George Michael it was only like later on when I really appreciated him as a singer I'm like oh he's really really good so I, then um, I, I can appreciate yeah, I him agree. as an artist and then um, at that Freddie Mercury concert uh, he did Somebody to Love and I think he was the best performance on that day so I was like really appreciate him as a singer so but that Christmas single it never really obviously I was aware of it you know but it never really got its hooks into me in any way See, for me, I didn't know anything of George Michael's music until Limp Bizkit introduced me to Faith. Right. <laughs> so there's a cover version of Faith that they do, and the only difference is instead of it going B to E on the verse, it goes B to A. So I always do the Limp Bizkit version as right. I play it. Like, and no one's noticed yet, but like, um, it's just my little thing. And you know, Fred Durst screaming, "You gotta have faith!" in the chorus, <laughs> you know. <laughs> It's, um, and then I found that like faith is a staple in my acoustic set now, and like I'm thinking of other Wham and George Michael ones to do as well because um, it really goes down well. And I actually had his Desert Island discs on uh, on the iPlayer radio the other day, and that is a very interesting read. What uh, read? What man about listen? Um, it was yeah. He's he's much more. Um, I don't know, I give him a lot more respect now that I know more about him than I did from just hearing the songs on the radio at school yeah, or yeah. what have you. Um, especially in the 80s, I guess, for uh, a bisexual slash homosexual guy being in front and centre in the 80s when that was a different time. You know, That's what he speaks about you know, mostly in that interview. And you just sort of think, well, think about what's acceptable now. You, you wouldn't have any problem. You be yourself, mate. No one cares, you know. <laughs> I think uh, quite a telling thing was like um, after he died, like lots of stories came out about like quiet acts of kindness and charity, um, which was really nice because he just did that because, you know. And then so when things like that come out, someone died, that really shows the character of the person, you know. Obviously, most of his ups and downs. I'm not saying he was a perfect person, but like, I thought that was very good and then when he was caught like in that uh, toilet with a policeman and like you know had to come out but then he just owned it the next video you know he's like just <laughs> spinning toilets and he's in like dressed up as a policeman or something he's like is it right I'm gonna own it it's like respect you know exactly and and this is what we like isn't it we like to see someone who's been shat on come out of it on top getting absolutely baked and driving into that snappy snaps camera shop <laughs> like <laughs> classic <laughs> Do you know, I would have loved to have been working there, you know, you'd have got there like, what happened to the shop, mate? You're never going to believe this. Well, someone drove <laughs> into it, but who was it? It was George Michael. Right, who was it? 
No, but it was Heiser Kai. It was George Michael drove into our shop. <laughs> the best day at work ever. So, so yeah, it'd be Pixar. It didn't happen now, wouldn't it? But yeah, it's. Um... I guess yeah. Getting back to it, there's like there's a lot of great influences like of these other artists that have kind of boiled through into the the songs for me. Like I, like I was saying about the the influences ripping off styles, not actually ripping off chords and stuff. I'm I'm wondering whether I might make a list about this album, like every single in, influence that I've knowingly put in there. Like one of them is that um, it's on track two, yeah, the uh, Novia, and there's a drum fill that's just drums where the guitar's cut out and it's like a one bar drum fill just as a break between the chorus. And I found it's actually a, an identical fill to that's involved in a corn track. Okay. Like, you know, a really obscure album track that's not like a single or anything. And it just happens to be at a similar tempo and it's exactly the same drum fill. And I knew it was poignant in some way, but it actually, there's some of the influences were like, I definitely know what I'm doing. I'm taking this thing and using it here. Yeah. Uh, and other ones were like that one where I'd done it all. And then about a year after, like once I'm mixing it, hear the song that it's come from and go, ah, that's where that came from then. So I'm I'm not opposed to the verse to sort of sort of saying yes. There's a lot of this other band in this song, but you can't just say that that one drum fill I've ripped off a corn song. Yeah, and it's interesting you use the word poignant as well because like maybe that was the feeling you had subconsciously associated with that corn thing, and then you wanted that not necessarily the drum fill, but that was like only the mechanism for it to happen. So that's yeah. what you tuned into and then put that into it. And, oh, that's where it came from. But there's a reason for that. I mean, one of the obvious influences is later on in the album. And I'm hoping that Avril Lavigne herself might hear the, the song one day. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's quite a... I don't want to use the word blatant because that implies that I'm lazy or I didn't try in some way. But... I'd had her first album on the night before and then the day after I was writing a song and it was very heavily influenced by one of her songs. And I thought about ways as to how I can manipulate or modify this so that it's not a direct ripoff and it is just an influence. And so essentially the chord progression is the same. Yeah, like you want to take something of that and then mold it into something different. Yeah, and originally I'd written it in the same key as well. So I decided to change the key a little bit, move it down so it sounded different in my head. Um, but then once I'd written the vocal melody to it, the vocal melody is completely different. So soon you, you hear the guitar come in for the intro, and you're like, oh, hang on a minute, this sounds a little bit like, oh, and then it's just gone because it's a different vocal melody. Nice, yeah. So... I do wonder whether that'll get banded around like the Ed Sheeran and Dua Lipa thing where it's like, oh, that's just a rip-off. Well, no, it isn't. It's not the same vocal melody. It's, it's, you know, it's an influence. So I don't know how many of those I've actually got, but I reckon it could go up to at least 30, maybe 40 different individual spot influences across the album. Yeah, I wonder like, how many I've done on my releases, but then some of my stuff is pretty weird and I'm... I mean, you can say that, oh, I want to be different and deliberately doing weird stuff, but 
Um, yeah, there's kind of standard building blocks and things, isn't there? Where it's like, well, that was used in a lot of different things. And I'm not going to just avoid stuff that works just because it's been used a lot because it works. You know. I mean, the other thing that's kind of geeky and uh, I guess niche knowledge uh, surrounding the writing of the songs is that uh, I tried to connect every track harmonically. Oh, okay. So um, I guess whether it like feels like a, a song is like the second movement of the previous song because it's in a similar key or a, rel a related key or um, like one of them finishes on an E chord and then the next chord song comes straight in at C sharp minor and it's in the same general tonal center. Um, one of them was like a definite semitone up shift from like E minor to F minor and it creates a certain effect. Um, some of them are like a fourth away. They're all still in like the related keys in something. So that's again why it feels annoying to me that some one might just listen to two of the tracks off the album or download two of the tracks and not listen to it in order or something because the order has been purposely put there. Yeah. You know, track one is track one because it goes before track two. You listen to it as track 13 then why would you listen to the first chapter right at the end you know yeah i've got a concept album where i've done that and had like repeated themes but sometimes just deliberately like had it completely different from the next song because like well that's where that cuts off now it's in part of the story so yeah using both um yeah i might release that next year that album uh called karma for dogs it's uh, oh yeah um, there's three characters. There's a postman, uh, stress that neighbor, and a little dog, and they're stuck in this like reincarnation cycle until they can break out of their problems. But they're all linked, and it's like <laughs> this concept of like the whole story together. So, a bit weird. Well, interested to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wrote that about uh, 2007, um, a while back. But it's um, some cool stuff in there. All right, so, yeah, I think it's a good time to wrap it up. Otherwise, we'll be talking all night. God, it's half past nine, yeah. <laughs> That's, um, yeah, it been cool talking to you. I've been really interested to hear this album now. I've been discussing it. And um, I've heard some of your other material, and um, I know you as a person, so it would be quite interesting to see how that's developed and how that's been processed. Definitely. And I would be interested to, to hear the difference now between... Um, well, I guess I'll send you a copy of the album at some point in the next week or so and then you can start having to listen to it and then some point in the future we'll do another one where you know the songs now and see if you have any different questions or anything yeah and see um what my take on it is and um but generally um what's the kind of style i mean it's probably different um styles within it but what's the general kind of vibe music the general is? style i would market it as pop rock okay so guitar based uh, pop rock it's guitar based band it's mainly songs written on acoustic guitar, but there's an element of heaviness that runs through the whole album. Um, but yeah, I guess pop, pop music mainly, but rock as a background and just hinting to a lot of other popular styles out of, I guess, pop, rock, country, blues, electronica, stuff that usually has guitars in it, but I guess... Yeah, nice. the electronic component, not so much, but yeah. Cool, and we'll put any relevant links in the show notes, and if people yes, want to find so you or not. Um... Like you were saying last time about social media, well, like uh, the thing that I have now is a website, and I've found a way to to 
post my tunes on my website and ensure that they're not available to listen to anywhere else. Cool. So do you want to give that website address out? So that is just steveling.uk. And I found that if you put www before it, sometimes it works as well. Uh, but I don't think it is. It's just steveling.uk. Awesome. Well, cheers, Steve. And um, we'll speak again soon. Indeed. That's one. Outro music. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.